2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Ben Sternkey. I'm here with Matt Tebby. Yep. Hey, Matt. Hey, good day. Ta- coming to us uh, from across across town. Matt and I live about five minutes away from mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. Uh, but we're, uh, because of COVID, we don't record in the same room anymore. Yeah. Not since March. Yeah. Uh, kind of crazy. It's been that long. It is so. crazy. But today, we, um, have, we have a treat. Today we have a treat uh, on a number of levels. One level is that we're starting a new series Mm -hmm. uh, today uh, with this podcast with Esau McCulley. Uh, That's the other treat, by the way, Um, (laughs) is is being able to hear from Esau. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, the series that we're starting today is a series, we don't really have a fancy name for it, but it is a series on power and race and gender Hmm. in the church. Yep. The Christian and church. I think yep. in the Christian church, yeah. And so I think um, the events of last week on Epiphany, um, where a violent racist mob mm. stormed the Capitol building um, and got in and uh, interrupted the uh, proceedings of Congress, uh, yep. that's one evidence that I think this series is a really timely one um, because uh, I think one of the most, for me anyway, one of the most disturbing aspects of that event was, and just everything that has led up to that uh, event is the involvement of Christians hmm. and people who espouse the Christian faith in um, in that whole ideology. Hmm. Um, and so the, the entanglement of uh, Christianity with uh, racist ideology, uh, all of that kind of thing is deeply uh, disturbing um, to me. And it, I think it just highlights something that uh, a lot of people have been talking about for a while but it just highlights the fact that we have a we have a big problem matt (laughs) we have a big problem to address we do we do. And then, uh, I mean, a couple of the links that we sent out, um, things that came to light uh, this past the past couple of weeks, a couple of the links that we sent out and the curated links this last week have to do with the scandals recently with Ravi Zacharias and uh, the way that his ministry is handling yeah. those allegations. And then also um, Hillsong and uh, the fact that, you know, maybe this isn't just a few... Bad individuals, but we have a systemic, institutional, a cultural uh, issue. A cultural issue, yes, yeah, with power our, yep. as it relates to race and gender. Yeah. So that's what uh, the, we're starting a series. And so it's a series of interviews um, that are sort of uh, loosely affiliated around these themes. And this is the first one with Esau McCulley, mm. uh, where in, we interviewed him about his book, Reading While Black. Um, we did this, I mean, incidentally, it's probably important to say, we did this before. Uh, the events of last week, obviously, and so oh, yeah. you won't hear any commentary on that. Nope. Um, but you might from Esau if you follow him on social media. So, Matt, anything yeah. else to say about this interview? Um,
3: no, other than uh, this book, Reading Well Black, is one of the best five books I read last year. Um, yeah. I I wish, we sent out, I I put it in my list of books I recommended that Gravity sent out at the end of the year, and I, I said the only critique I had of it was that it was too short. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> um. One of the things we talk about in this interview is that uh, we we can't we it's not faithful to leave our social location behind when we read, mm. and unless we acknowledge it and hold it as well as best as we can and own it, it actually can sometimes um, do bad work. Yes. Um, Meaning we think we have objective perception or we don't realize how whiteness and being white impacts what we can see and what we can't see and how we see things. And so um, Esau, Esau's book is a gift. He said he wrote it for uh, black Christians, African-American Christians, but I, it's a gift because it frees me up to own that I read while I'm white and I need to listen to people who read while they're black. Yes, uh, this is a great episode to kick off this series with. And yep. Esau is not just an author, but he's also part of our our denomination. Uh, he's a what, what's yeah. known as a canon theologian in our diocese, yeah. which means he's one of the um, theological uh, minds and shapers uh, that our bishop looks to for guidance and support and uh, help. So it's great that he's also a leader in our yep. our diocese.
2: Yep, yep. Enjoy the interview. Pick up the book. And uh, we'll see you next episode for another um, on this race, gender, and power series. Peace, y'all.
4: It's more about the this this assumption that they are allowed to police black voices white people and in the black intellect yeah i would just say some uh-huh. um, they really feel like they get a vote and and they really feel without any historical awareness mm. because historical awareness would bring epistemic humility and there is an epistemic arrogance that sometimes permeates this conversation where the assumption is we are the heretics and we have to prove the worth to say the things that we want to do. Yeah. So this is the assumption that, 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 that we're wrong and we have to prove that we're right or that we have to cater to other people's emotions. And one of the things that, that I mean when I say that, I know we're just starting a podcast hot, <laughs> is I know because I inhabit black spaces, I actually moving them. majority black spaces Mm -hmm. they range from progressive to conservative and no black person thinks of me as a radical progressive. Mm -hmm. They say, you know, he's also pretty moderate, pretty middle of the road. Mm -hmm. So when I go into a majority, so like, and, and here's the thing, nobody finds me confusing. (laughs) Nobody finds me confusing in black spaces, in black spaces, completely intelligible. Yeah. Completely intelligible. They know what I'm saying. They know the resources that I'm referring to. They know the world out of which I speak. So when I go into a different space and I am describing ways that don't comport with reality, I know because I've been in other places that I'm not crazy. <laughs> so like I know for a fact what what I mean what I say what I, what I mean when I say what I say and yeah. I know for a fact that what I say is intelligible and it's possible to be heard as me saying exactly what I say So when I speak about African-American hermeneutics and you don't understand it and here's the other thing there's certain people in the white community who do understand what I say
5: mm-hmm.
4: So if I am intelligible <laughs> mm-hmm. you know I I, I I am understandable and so the failure to understand, means that certain people live in a closed system where certain people are only able to play certain roles. And so they have one perception of who black people are and what we must think. And regardless of what I say, they, mu- they put... So like I say, you know what? The sun is shining. And then they'll go, well, Esau only believes the sun shines on black people because he thinks that white, everything, the sun is white supremacist. <laughs> like, <"Well>, wait, whoa. <laughs> where did that come from? And so it, it really is like, I... I sometimes want to meet the person who they're mad at so we can like yell at him together. <laughs> actually wouldn't yell at him. I would probably have a conversation with him and say, here are the places where we agree and disagree. But it's the internet, so what are you going to do? Yeah.
3: yeah. All right. Well, that's that's Esau McCauley. He's a friend of ours. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Esau. He's, uh, he teaches at Wheaton. He's uh, in our diocese. He's our canon theologian. He's also a priest in Acna. He's a dad. Uh, right now, he's winging it solo style, right? With yes, my wife?
4: wife is currently deployed and I am raising the, the, the four Macaulay kids. <laughs> um mostly by myself. I mean, obviously we have the help of the church and we have um yeah. child care assistance. So no one parents alone, but I am the, the adult who is in charge in the home. <laughs> yes. So there's <laughs> so... a lot more video games. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry wife. My I wife think... my wife may listen to it. They're oh, not yeah, playing Yeah. yeah. They are. Just reassure her. You know okay. something? They are. I'm not gonna lie to you. Your whole forty five minutes thing, that's out the window. <laughs> it's, God, it's
3: gonna well, be awkward, it's gonna be awkward when like mom's coming home tomorrow and the kids are like yeah, <laughs> clawing onto their iPads. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, there
2: is um, a pandemic on too, so I Exactly. Think there's, hopefully there's right. some grace. So
3: yeah. um, Esau has written a book called Reading While Black, African American Biblical Interpretation as an exercise in hope. I read this uh, several months ago. Esau was in a discussion group about it. It is probably my, t- it's in my top three books I've read in 2020. Um, it's incredible. Mm. We want to chat about it wow. today. It's, it's incredible. Actually, the only thing I didn't like about it is that there was only like six chapters and you didn't cover the rest of scripture. <laughs> like
4: <laughs> Everybody, you know, it's funny because people have said um, that the book is too short. Yeah, that's how I feel. And, um, and here's the thing. The book is a rough draft. I mean, you should buy the book. Hopefully you should buy it because I got <laughs> those four kids that got a feed. That's right. <laughs> but it was it was much more of, so this is not, I'm not equating myself with Tom, okay? So just like everybody commented. Tom, Tom Wright. Right. Oh, no, I was about T. to say Wright, like okay. N.T. Wright. So N.T. Wright has like the really big books and then he writes the really short versions of the books. Mm-hmm. So he normally writes the big book first and then the short book second. And so there's a big version of Reading While Black that is eventually going to come. It's actually a series of books that are going to come out of these topics. Hmm. But I felt like I had something I need to say now. I get it. So this is, I wanted to put a marker down. Like, this is what's coming. Yeah. So Reading While Black is much more of a declaration or the setting off of a journey hmm. than an arrival. Hmm. And so what I really needed, to, I felt like I wanted to be able to do as a writer and as a Christian and as a, a thinker was to, to to create some intellectual space for me to play for the next 30 or 40 years. So if you consider nice. like reading while black like this is the kind of stuff that I want to care about and the fact that and, and I was just so mad I mean I keep thinking about um, how how James Cohn talked about when he wrote his first book and he just like, wrote it in a summer and this like me and James have our disagreements. But I know what he means when he says when you write with a sense of passion and urgency. Hmm. And I wrote Reading While Black with urgency and I didn't have time. I didn't have I literally felt like I didn't have time Hmm. to make the book any longer than it was. And even certain parts of the book. So, for example, the Rage chapter, I just wrote that in it like an uh, afternoon. I just sat down and wrote it. (laughs) <laughs> um, and and I told my students, you shouldn't do this But if you go back, in case y'all want to see something Here's, I mean, for, for like people who are really, really nerdy re- Look at the bonus track at the end of the book yeah. And look at the footnotes in the bonus track And then you compare that to the footnotes in the Rage chapter In the Rage chapter, I just said, I'm just going to snap I just got stuff to say And they're just like a footnote desert Where I'm just like exegeting <laughs> on my own Talking to nobody, interacting with nobody, because I said like, I just have some stuff that I wanted to say, yeah. and so yes, it is true that the book is probably um, it could it could be fifty pages long. But the other thing is the unintended consequences that it feels accessible to people. Yeah, um, and I made it as simple as I could, and some people still consider it pretty technical. And so hopefully people will be patient when like there's the, the next book that's coming out of it. Eventually, it's not going to be the next book for me that you see, but um, the next substantial like exegetical work will probably be the book on Paul and slavery, if not Paul and policing or policing in the New Testament. One of those two books will be out next. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Uh-huh. Yeah. You're not taking votes right now, so I won't give you my... Uh...
4: <laughs> you, well, I, I'll ta- I'm actually taking votes. Which one should I do?
3: Policing, man. We have Oh, such... I was
4: going to do... I was going to do slavery. Were
3: you? I mean, So the policing yeah. chapter got me really amazing. Like the the way that you just like t- tied in insights about policing in Romans 13 and the way yeah. that Romans 13 is used in white spaces in the evangelical church, in particular in the last several years and, you know, the sort of the crickets about Romans 13 in the last week or so. Like it was just a fascinating look, a fascinating it, look. Did it,
4: did it, what, happened to, what happened to Romans 13?
3: <laughs> I think it's still there. So
4: here's the question. Sorry, sorry. I don't don't want to be passive aggressive, but let me speak plainly. A sitting senator is a ruler or a leader, correct? A sitting senator. I think so. So a a sitting senator of California then would be in and of oneself worthy of prayer as a leader who affects the country, a, a, a state that has a GDP that's the same size as many countries in the world. So. Given the fact that one is a sitting senator, you should probably pray for that person without reservation. That's if fair, right? If you're a Christian, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so wait, wait. So then, if you are, if you are, then the vice president elect, along with the president elect, then you might say that even currently they're exercising a role of leadership over the country, mm-hmm. meaning that like the call to pray for them would be a nonpartisan act and a manifestation of obedience to First Timothy. Okay, I always make sure I was reading and exegeting correctly and applying. You can't, you can't it. So see ahead. us. Sorry. You can't
3: hear us nodding our heads, but we're nodding our heads. You say. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So I'm so just
4: you, making sure. I'm making. I'm making sure. I'm like. I'm just trying to read the Bible, right? Let's yeah. let's yeah. jump
3: in. Let's jump in. Maybe there on that <laughs> chapter where you talk about Romans 13, because I my my question that I wanted to ask you is, did you have a consciousness moment as as a just as a person that you are actually reading while black and the difference that made for you
4: no um well actually i yes actually i did i just didn't i was thinking about the language i didn't like the language of what became reading while black i didn't have the language for it but i do i can tell you this when i went to um i talk about in chapter one but it's really like but the real thing that doesn't come across in that book which is you have to leave things out is that when I went to seminary, I had this idea because I saw, like, the money and the resources in evangelicalism and the structure. And I said, oh, we need to take some of those kind of, like, skills and then bring those back to the black church. That was, like, my idea.
5: Hmm.
4: I'm going to go to Gordon-Conwell, take the best of what Gordon-Conwell has and bring it back to my community. But when I got to Gordon-Conwell, and no shade to them, this is just, like, seminary education more broadly, like, wow, they don't understand anything that black people were saying. <laughs> and I said, they are in desperate need, desperate need of the insights of the black church. Yes. And I said this like a thousand times, but I'll say this again. It is important for people to engage in this intellectual exercise. Put themselves in 1855, and there's a black person there, and there's a white person there. And they both call the Bible the word of God and it's, its authority. And the black person is interpreting it one way and the white person is interpreting it the other way. As we now look back upon that era, all of us side with the black person, every single one of us. Hmm. We say that the, the exegesis used to support slavery, which is the, the consensus of churches was wrong. And they both had—so we, so we go back and we go, the black people are reading this well because of their experiences— Yep. Fast forward 100 years, it's 1955, 1955, right? And there are black people sitting in churches saying we need integration and justice now. Just pick a random black church in America. And then say, go to white churches. Where they, where at best, they're saying, well, let's be gradual. Mm-hmm. Black people are equal, but we shouldn't interact with them. We should be separate. And they're both justifying it based upon the Bible. These are promises. sisters like, look and ask yourself, who would you have sided with? And we all say the black person. You fast forward 70 years. We're in the year 2020.
3: Oh, close to home And now.
4: you're saying, you're <laughs> saying there are black people here. We're saying racism is an ongoing problem that is doing real damage to this country, that is negatively impacting our lives and the lives of our children. And y'all aren't, people aren't listening to us. So if you fast forward to 2060, and history is any indication, when they look back on this era of the church's history, do you really believe? That people are going to say, you know what? The black people finally, you know, like, we're we're wrong on this one. No, <laughs> it's not what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is fifty years from now, what is called radical today will be seen as the moderate position. And it happens every generation.
3: Yeah. Mm.
4: And yeah. here's the thing: in 1955, they were saying, "Hey, look how far we've come from slavery. Why shouldn't you be granted?" Look, there's actual interviews. Look at the interviews with um, James Bond. Um, oh, James Bond, was it, Aren't mm-hmm. you happy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Aren't you? Ha- why aren't you satisfied? Yeah. So the question, like, so now we're in 2020. Look how far we've come from 1950. Aren't you satisfied? Yeah. And yeah. the answer is no. We're not satisfied. So like, I began to understand that, and it's not because black people are magical. It's because of our experiences allow us to see things other people don't see. Yeah. I began to realize, like, oh, these things that I think are just basic in Christianity are controversial in these places. So I'm reading while I'm black. I didn't use that term, but it became clear to me in seminary. Um, and it not only became clear that I read the Bible differently, and this will sound arrogant, but I felt like we were reading it better. Mm. In the sense of like taking the whole thing seriously and trying to make sense of the whole thing as God's word, and, and I think that the, the, and this is the hard part of having this conversation in this group because people, depending on the listener, they don't actually understand the tradition that I'm talking about. Yeah, when I talk about the tradition I'm talking about, people always ask me, "Well, where can I go and read it?" I'm not like, "Go into actual churches, hmm. yeah, in black churches." We have been combining. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy for literally hundreds of years, and the uh, in a, like the, the fact that like this is even at all controversial, and the churches are struggling. Imagine being a Christian. Sorry, you can't do this. Imagine being a Christian and having like Jesus at the center of your religion, Jesus' own ministry. Imagine having the prophets and the Psalms and the Deuteronomic Laws about compassion. Imagine having that in your Bible and asking the question about the Christian social witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like imagine that. Yeah, yeah. Imagine, sorry, this is this is the Anglicans. I'm sorry, I'm on a rant. <laughs> imagine being an Anglican coming from the Church of England where we have bishops who are in the parliament, literally in the yeah. government. Yeah. <laughs> hmm and asking things about whether or not there should be an Anglican political theology. So like we 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 really have to we really have to take seriously the ways in which our tradition um, can sometimes like our, like different reading communities can really distort plain readings of text. Yeah, I just yeah. had this thing with my with my students, sorry, I'm going to let you talk. But I had this thing with my students where we are talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I said, let's just read, like, verse 5, where the issue is, like, whether or not women should pray with their heads uncovered or covered. But I said, wait, but regardless of how you do the veil stuff, which is an entirely different conversation, the women are praying and prophesying in chapter 11. So, like, they're speaking. Mm -hmm. So the idea of a woman being absolutely silent, it's like she's praying right there. She's prophesying right there. Because we just we're just trained to like literally not see words that are on the page.
3: Yes. So yes. you mentioned you mentioned Gordon Conwell. I went to a theologically adjacent school. Pretty much just swap out the name, and it's the same prof, same sort of uh, sort of uh, evangelical neo Puritan stream. And what I learned about the uh, black theologians were that they were either liberal or liberationists and so i i didn't read them i i was taught why i shouldn't read them right so Mm -hmm. and so what happened was that that's the first thing i never i never learned to appreciate uh the black church and the black theological tradition but the other thing was there was no reckoning or acknowledgement that i am actually reading while white
4: so that's, and that's and that's that's the thing that's the thing that's the reason that people don't like reading while black because the assertion of my social location has an implication of other people's social location yes yeah and so one of the things that I, that I like to talk about is people like call Bart right people like Bart in general yeah in general. <laughs> Y'all. not about Let's not talk about <laughs> not the marriage situation. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm, just, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna use an example. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll say, but you know what? These two or three things about Bart I didn't like, and these two or three things, two or three things about Bart I do like. Mm-hmm. Well, people like John Stott, right? People are like people don't like that John Stott isn't an, an you know some people like he's an he's an annihilationist that whatever that's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they go, okay, this aspect of what John Stott said, I disagree with. And this aspect of what John Stott says, I agree with. There's a sophisticated appropriation of truth.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: The only people who don't get that kind of sophisticated appropriation of truth are the Black liberation theologians. Why? Why is that? Because, like, I don't know. Wh- I don't know why. What I I'm saying a, is, I have a if hypothesis. You, if, if you if you are going to do a paper in your class. You have to engage in agreement and disagreement with scholars across the tradition. That's what academics is. Mm -hmm. So I do not agree with everything that every black liberationist says. But I can say this part is good and Mm -hmm. this part is bad. I'll give you an example. We could talk about two sentences that James Cone gave. Sentence one that James Cone gives. This This is not representative of his thought. These are two random sentences. First one. He says if God had been revealed as the God of the Egyptians rather than the God of the Israelites, then a much different God would have been revealed because God would have been on the side of the oppressor. I said, like, wow, that would have, that's really true. If God had showed up at the Exodus and goes, no, y'all stay different Bible. <laughs> right. That's true. Right. More right. Bricks, yeah, less yeah. straw. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. that's, he said, it's a different God. Yeah. So the fact that God goes, shows up on the side of the Israelites, shows you something about God's character. Amen. Okay. Later mm-hmm. on in that same essay, He says that the hermeneutical principle for the exegesis of Scripture um, is the freedom of the oppressed from oppression. It is not simply um, – what do you want to say? He would say something along the lines of it is not simply like congruent with the gospel. It is the gospel of Christ. Mm -hmm. So when he says that the liberation of the oppressed from oppression is the gospel of Christ, is the gospel, we disagree. Mm -hmm. We disagree. Yeah. So I can say – no, the totalizing claim that, that that the gospel. And I'm not saying that he doesn't qualify that in other writings. So this, I'm just talking about in this sentence, in this sure. essay that he gave. Sure. And I can say when he says that, I can say, you know what? In the Bible, Exodus gives way to Leviticus, the formation of the cult. Right. The point of liberation is so that we might be a community that worships God and reflects His own character in the world. So my definition of how we how like the purpose of freedom. It's different than his. yeah. But it doesn't mean that like in order for me to come into a room, to to come into a space, like I'm the hired black person to only criticize (laughs) tone. So what I'm saying, like, so there's not a sophisticated engagement. And so the first thing that you have to do when you're an African-American scholar is show that you hate the right people. Yeah. dude. And I just refuse to begin my scholarship by hating the right people. I engage in a dialogue where there's agreement and disagreement. Yeah. And here's the thing. We do things like ignore slavery in theologians. They were just products of their time. Right. So, yes, they theologically justified the dehumanization of black people. That didn't didn't have any impact on the rest of their theology. (laughs) Right. Right. And we said, like, so what I'm saying is I don't t- throw those people away yeah I engage with an appropriation of the entirety of the Christian tradition understanding yeah. that all of us are fallen
5: yes.
4: and that there are no pure heroes in the church's history where you can just say, hey I, I like Luther has this anti-Semitism so like everyone has their dark side yeah mm-hmm. because we are dark we're broken people
5: mm-hmm.
4: and so that means as an African-American, I have to be free to engage my tradition. And I can tell you there are people who, who like, say, I only listen to you if you hate the right people.
5: Yeah.
4: And, and so, like, I don't – there are people who I have really strong disagreements with and theologians who I have strong disagreements with, disagreements with, black theologians who I have really strong disagreements with, but I don't perform that disagreement in public.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Hmm. Because that disagreement that I, that's performed in public – serves a a end gets co-opted. the
2: rhetorical effect of that is like oh yeah
4: so like the the amazing part about like reading while black to actually get back into the book is i actually say that in the book
2: yeah
4: in chapter one Mm
2: -hmm.
4: the black progressive tradition deserves it has its own voice but that's not me but i'm not saying that's not me in order to please anyone i'm saying that's not me because it's not me and what you what is defined as progressive and conservative, in one space, is not the same that it's in, as it as it is in another space. Mm-hmm. These things are complicated, and if you're going to engage African American thoughts, you got to engage that complication. Uh-huh.
1: We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy.
3: So let's talk about then how you take maybe uh, your location, your social location, and how it changes the way that you look at a certain text just for instance to give our listeners a flavor of what you're talking about like yeah. you, you mentioned four different aspects of questions that you bring and things you notice to for instance uh a romans 13 text the text we brought up earlier yeah that don't show up in, for instance you mentioned richard hayes's moral vision of the new testament yeah um, so could you just maybe briefly share like yes I'm glad.
4: I'm glad. I'm glad. This is important. This actually is important for the people who are who are concerned. I think this social location r- causes way more emotion than is actually congruent with the claim that's being made. And this is what I mean. I think you guys are in Indianapolis, correct? That's right. Yeah. So I don't know if you've always been there, but when you go from one community to another, you you if you pastor in one church, and then you and then you pastor in another church.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: You can open up the same passage of the Bible, and as you're imagining preaching to a different congregation, you're not only going to preach differently. That's not what I'm saying. The fact that you're thinking about that group of people and you bring those people with you to the text causes you to see things in the text that you had not noticed before. It wasn't that it it wasn't in the text. You just didn't notice it because Mm -hmm. your concern wasn't attuned to those people. Yeah. And if you think, so so then well, you want to say that, okay, then what happens if your mind is populated with the concerns of African-Americans and you're asking yourself this particular set of questions, what does this text say to an African-American who is suffering? Hmm. Then you might notice things that are in the text that the fact that you weren't concerned with those questions caused you not to mention. Here's another thing, though. That, so, 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 so there's the target audience. Yep. Mm-hmm. that influences what you see. But there's also how who you are influences the things that you see. Because then not only are you bringing the concerns of your congregation before the Lord, you're bringing your own issues and your own questions, and yeah. they shape the kinds of things you're looking for. It doesn't mean that no one else can get to those things. It just means there's certain communities that are more apt to do so. So for example, there's a reason why the African American context emphasizes um, something like the liberation, uh, liberation as being a dominant theme in the Bible, because we were a people who were not liberated. Yes. Right? But then the question becomes is liberation a dominant theme, theme in the Bible? Well, the answer is yes. Well, then why wasn't liberation a dominant theme for the slave masters? Because it's it very convenient. Because it's convenient <laughs> to them. <laughs> yeah. So the slave master's social location blinded them to the truths of the scriptures. Yes, Yes. I can tell you, here's a perfect example. Um, I have a a Latino scholar here, Danny Danny Carroll, pointed out to me how much of the Bible deals with migration Hmm. and immigration and moving from one place to the next. Did I know that? Yeah, I kind of did. But when you began to realize it, well, yeah, the Abraham story is an immigration story. Mm -hmm. It just is. Mm -hmm. But I I didn't bring the concerns of immigration to the text. So I underplayed a theme that exists in the Bible. Yeah. So, when I start talking about social location, it is simply dishonest to assume that our experiences don't screen out certain things and emphasize others. And the idea is that we're just like mechanical exegetes who are just translating the Greek and the Hebrew is simply not accurate. And so yeah. that means my context is both a hindrance to me in certain contexts and a a help in other contexts, which means we need the entirety of the community of the people of God to understand this correctly. So an example that is not rooted in ethnicity or, or race is actually it is, but it's differently. When people from the global South come here and call us Americans crazy materialists who don't take all of the things that the Bible says about poverty, and you kind of go, oh, yeah. It's a whole lot. And we got to go, oh, yeah, it's completely the case. There's someone who comes from outside of our context and brings that stuff into our context. Last one. Last one. Social location. Because of our science and our technology and our advancements and our assumption about our Western competence, we tend to downplay the spiritual spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. You get your Pentecostal brothers and sisters from the global south coming and telling you about the Holy Spirit. Why do we have such a, 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 um, a deficient doctrine of the spirit here versus other parts of the country, other parts of the world? Mm. Because of our, our location as Americans causes us to trust in our own competence, which causes us to not take seriously what Paul says about spiritual powers. Because Paul says, sorry, this is social location, Paul says that there's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And that everything that isn't a part of the kingdom of light is a part of the kingdom of darkness. So then you gotta ask yourself a question Is our American government and our economic system and our and our social system, is it a part of the kingdom of light? Are we making the claim that that America as a culture is a part of the kingdom of light? And if it is not, then according to Paul, it is under the, it, it is subject to spiritual forces mm-hmm. that distort our perception. Yes, but we don't take the spiritual. So then, that means that means you get something like something like along the lines of racism could be a, a spiritual deception that infects the people. Yeah, but we don't take spirituality as as a central part of our of our understanding of how the world works because we devi- we, we we trust in Western technology. Hmm. What I'm trying to explain to you is how who we are and where we're located influences not what the Bible says but our ability to perceive it rightly. Yeah. And the idea that that claim is that all controversial runs against the grain of all of human history. <laughs> and the idea that African-Americans, because we have experienced imp- oppression and injustice over the course of centuries, had developed methods of reading the Bible and emphasizing, de things— that are neglected in other contexts. Of course that's the case. I'm going to give you one example. I'm not going to talk about Romans 13. Read the book. Here's the one that you need to talk about, the image of God. Hmm. Yes, everybody talks about the image of God. It is a gift to the church. Everybody believes in the Imago Dei, Genesis 126 to 128. But look at what the image of God does in black theology and how the image of God pushes back in black theology on the faulty anthropology that existed in America where black people were seen as subhuman or a secondary category. We took those same biblical texts and said, these are the biblical texts that we we should use to to define a person. Where our opponents said, no, no, no. Christian anthropology begins, black anthropology begins with the curse of Ham. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that that use of the Bible to use Genesis 26 to 126 to 28 to push back on segregation and oppression and the 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 um the withdrawal of respect for black persons and black bodies is what we do because we are black. Hmm. Our experiences in black bodies cause us to take those passages. And emphasize them in a way that is unique as a deposit, as a literary deposit in the history of the American church. Mm. This is the reason why what comes in, what comes into music in its popular manifestation. I'm black and I'm proud. Black is beautiful. All of that stuff is a a a, a an assertion of, a, of an anthropology about what a black person is, rooted in the Imago Day that comes out of the black church. And so people say, well, why can't I say I'm white and I'm proud? Because you never had the defaulting anthropology yeah. that you're responding to. Black beauty is an assert- a counter-assertion from our reading of biblical text. So the idea that when I say, hey, here's the legacy of black biblical interpretation. Here are the passages that we emphasize. Here's the way that we read the Bible in order north to feel like we can be free and, and we can live. The idea that that is devaluing the scripture, is profoundly disrespectful. And as a black man, I'm going to fight to say that my tradition has something distinctive, theological to say, that is worthy. That's the reason why the first chapter of the South got something to say. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm not gonna let anybody devalue the tradition that allows me to function as a Christian right now. Yeah. So sorry you didn't get Romans 13, but you got social location. (laughs) I'll take it, man. So if I'm, wrong, take it. if I'm wrong, show me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, I think, I think what I am in touch with, Esau, is this latent anxiety that is baked into maybe the white Western European hermeneutical and ontological sort of assumption, which is twofold. One, that if you start to give credence to every perspective, like the great postmodern bugaboo, then yeah. you lose any kind of orientation about what's true, et cetera. Mm-hmm. which, which mm-hmm. underneath that is the assumption that the white European perspective is the objective truth. And so there's this twofold. Yeah. There's this keeping the other perspectives at bay because there be dragons in postmodernity while resisting and denying that you are operating from a social location yourself and, and so that you're, you're, you're never able to actually grow and repent of that. And I think, I mm-hmm. think a lot of our listeners are, uh, have seen the faultiness of that but I do think we've been given no uh, no theological structure beyond sort of this m- rigid, modernist, uh, unilateral yeah. perspective so that now we have this plurality of voices and most of us are going, yeah, okay, finally, good. But then it's a little like disorienting about how do yeah, I, I can, then I can, adjudicate?
4: I I'm glad yeah. that you said that because um, that also gives me like a um, some clarification. So... The first thing is everything that comes from a plurality plurality, or whatever you want to say, that multiplicity of voices isn't always going to be good. So I like to use the analogy of the Reformation. You've heard me say this before. At the center of the Reformation was this idea of justification by faith. And that was kind of broadly correct, right? Like people got that correct. But what came out of that? We're a, multi- a multiplicity of denominations and theological traditions, some, which, some of which are good and some of which are bad. And we look back from the perspective of history and we can discern like the 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 ways in which things were good and things were bad. We're now at the we're in the middle of kind of a, a, a similar upheaval around justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a multiplicity of voices and the fullness of those streams and the discerning the good and the bad is hard to do now. But it'll become clear later on. That's just the nature of um, of changes in the church. The other thing that I want to say is, I think that there is a difference between saying my experiences are determinative for truth, versus I I can I th- my experiences inform how I see the world. Mm-hmm. Because what I still have, at least in my understanding of what's going on, at the center of it, God's word to us, um, the inspiration of the scriptures. Such that, like, we're all looking at the same object and agreeing that that object functions as our authority. And we're doing the best that we can to read it across time and culture. And that we're trusting that the Spirit of God can lead us to truth. And so, what I am much more about is mutuality than deconstruction. And if you're an Anglican, you actually recognize this. And I don't know how many people on the podcast are Anglican, but if you're just a, a classical Christian, it's probably a better way to put it. So, we understand that the reason that you read the church fathers and the church mothers and the Christians through, like from the ancient world is that like, they lived in a different world. They saw things differently than us, and they, they have insights that we now may miss. Mm-hmm. So we actually say, I don't just need the Christians from now. I need the Christians across time. And, it, and it's precisely the fact that they're from a different culture, different time, different perspective. They have insights on the scriptures that we may neglect. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, like, that basic principle is still in operation, and it, cl- and it crosses ethnicity.
5: Yeah.
4: And so what I want to say is I trust the Holy Spirit to allow the truth to emerge through the multiplicity of voices. And the other thing that I want to say is it's one thing to, to, to acknowledge the social location of all theology. It is another thing that means that the necessary corollary from that is all theology is necessary false necessarily false. So I don't believe that we need to throw away the entirety of the Western tradition. I still believe that the Trinity somehow we managed to get the Trinity correct. <laughs> somehow, like through all of the brokenness of human society, we got the creeds correct. Yeah. Right? And so I think that it is it is different from saying, like, let's throw everything away, yeah. to saying let's trust the spirit of God to use the multiplicity of voices and allow yeah. truth to emerge. And I think that this is easier for us to say like retrospectively than we can say it now. And what I mean yeah. is. Anybody who reads church history knows that what we now know is trin- Orthodox Trinitarian theology, and Orthodox Christology, where it was it would never, at any means, a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Like if you just pause history at certain points, oh, we're gonna all be Arian, like completely <laughs> Arian. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, the truth emerges maybe because the Spirit of God is guiding us towards all truth. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah. it may feel this this you know unstable now. Yeah. But I trust that the Spirit of God is going to lead us as a church yeah. to a a proper understanding of His will for us. God is so sorry. This is honestly super Jesus-y. Jesus is so amazing that it took us like a thousand years to get Christology right. <laughs> like imagine like, this. He was yeah. around for like thirty three years. Yeah. It was like the it's the ten fifty four. It's like the seven ecumenical councils to kind of pull our Christology together. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the kind of weight that He has in human history. Yeah. So it is no surprise that even 2,000 years later, we're still trying to become the kind of community to embody what he said in those three years. Yeah, We're 2,000 years down the road from Jesus and we're still trying to get justice correct.
5: Yeah.
2: And I think part of what I'm hearing you say, Esau, is that for people who aren't used to that feeling of disorientation, uh, it can feel like, oh, this is a bad thing. I need to, like I need to like lock this down now, you know, yeah. and, the, and the way they do it is by saying, you know, James Cone is a heretic and black theology is, you know, X, Y, or Z, right? Or whatever. But I, I hear you saying like, actually the Holy Spirit works in the midst of that disruption. The Holy Spirit works in the midst of that disorientation. And I, I think that's a lo- I think that's what a lot of our listeners are longing for right now. This is post-election um, you know, the last four years have been crazy. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And I think there there is this poverty that a lot of, um, at least a lot of my, like, a lot of our white listeners, and they're probably mostly white, but a lot of our white listeners are feeling in terms of how do I talk to my church about the scriptures? How do I talk to my church about justice? Yeah. Because I think we're feeling the poverty of how, like... You know, the way that we've been talking about it has resulted in this,
4: and it's a mess. I can tell you, um, um, and this is actually a hard question. Like, this is probably the hardest question. And all I can say is a couple of things, and this is not to be flippant, but like all bills come due. Hmm. And the long-term consequences of our theological decisions and our pastoral decisions – eventually manifest themselves in history yep and I think regardless of your partisanship we can acknowledge that there was a wholesale discipleship failure that characterized significant segments of the church yep amen and and we decided that we were going to focus on I'm just going to talk about Jesus and which by the way please do. Right. But I'm gonna talk about a certain kind of Jesus. And I'm I'm gonna kind of stay, I'm not gonna disciple my people through not telling them who to vote for. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about helping them like fully integrate their Christianity with all aspects of their of their life and their person. Yes. And so when things would get rough, we would just say, Well, hopefully things will get back to normal. And we basically yeah. um we basically um relegated their discipleship. In their like personality, in their personhood, in their posture, to like Fox News and MSNBC. Yeah. So it's the, then you, as a pastor, are required to be in. Think about this is true. I know it's the case. As a think about this, you are a pastor, and your pastor, your congregation, is asking if you agree with the news commentator, mm-hmm. and if you don't agree with the news commentator, you could lose your position. Your position. Or you are a theological heretic. Yeah. And none of those people have any theological training. Right. And if you think that this election was not theological, theological. There are theological arguments being made. Christian faith being questioned. So what how did that occur to where we have no real influence? Not on how people vote. That's not what I'm talking about. About how people see all of this stuff fitting together.
3: Yeah. Political theology you're talking about. Yes, about?
4: Yes, yeah. we didn't have one. We gave it up because it was divisive. And we could grow our churches faster if we ignored it.
5: Yeah. And
4: black people suffer for it. Yep. Yeah. Because the we, were seeing as we, yeah, we were seeing it as divisive because we're bringing up contested issues. We just want to be diverse. We don't want to talk about anything difficult. You bring your black body into the space, but don't bring your black pain. Mm. And so what do you, like, so now... The card is out of the and so I know a lot of people are thinking, oh, and this is one. This is actually I, I thought this. Oh, we will vote, and then we'll move on. Whoever wins. But I realized something. Like after the election, it's actually it actually like the most depressing part after the election. I was actually sad after the election. Is the church is as divided?
2: Yep.
4: After the election, as it was before the election.
2: That's right.
4: As divided. And that is because we have not come to a place where we can even have a discussion about these things. Because, and and it's not just like, I don't want to say the media, it sounds like so much, like, (laughs) on the internet and on the news, you are rewarded for hating the right people. Mm -hmm. And there's a category of people who you're allowed to hate. And we serve a religion that's rooted in love.
0: Yeah.
4: So we have a society defined by hate, and a Jesus is defined by love, and we can't actually engage in that society other than speaking about platitudes. But love this requires specificity
5: mm-hmm.
4: yeah. and real engagement. And so I am telling you the pastoral crisis that is affecting large segments of the of white churches is to recapture the theological imagination of your congregation. Yeah. And I can't tell you how to do that. <laughs> and I can tell you, and here's the thing, This, if it makes you feel any better, this, let me give you the other side. There's the perception of the black church that we're radically different. But percentage-wise, maybe 20% of the black church participated in the Civil Rights Movement. We weren't all in the streets. Yeah. There's some of us who were similarly afraid. It wasn't the fact that everybody, but what it did, but what that 20% that was prophetic did, it drugged the whole black church along. Mm-hmm. So now, when the black church kind of post civil rights returns to a steady state, it doesn't return to where it was. Everybody's much further along, mm-hmm. and so there has to be a prophetic edge that pushes. Even, and, and listen. I would love for there to be a a version of white churches that are are as clear theologically as they are socially and culturally. So when you start pushing back on these things, which I think you should, people need to know who you are and what you believe.
5: Hmm.
4: So like, yeah, like I believe the Bible is true and you should care about poor people. <laughs> it has to be that clear because that's right. how clear it is in the black church. Yeah, We believe this stuff is true. Yeah. And we are unapologetic about it, yes. and because of that, yeah. I mean, there's this woman. There's this woman. <laughs> oh, there's this woman. She said um, she was standing in the line. They were doing one of the um, one of the, re- the canvases for one of the recounts, and she was standing in line. And she said, "I'm standing here because I want my vo- my vote counted in Jesus' name." <laughs> <laughs> and they would only do it because it was a black woman, right? Because you know, like if it was, you know, like a white person, they would have freaked out. But like the news person was like, "I don't know what you, like, I'm going to be voted because Jesus won't be voted." it said she was clear.
5: Yeah,
4: it was utterly clear. In Jesus' name, I'm casting this vote. Y'all not finna like mess with my ballot. <laughs> and so that's what I'm talking about. It has to be clear. Yeah, say it with your chest is what we will say. I know I'm talking too much, but um, that's just it's it's what's on my heart. That's great.
3: Yep. That's good. I'll, I'll, what I hear from white pastors, I feel this in me, is that there is a sense in which the, the political imagination for how theology gets worked out publicly has been so scripted uh, for a, a majority of white people by, yeah. by conservative, progressive, by right and left, that yeah. uh, there is this fear of, yep. of, of two things being being thrown in and labeled as a godless secularist with those Democrats and right. to make this I mean Isa, I know you get I know you get this yeah uh, like white people we don't spend as much energy as black people do, I'm sure, but we spend a lot yeah. of energy trying to not make other white people angry. Yes, we spend a mm-hmm. lot of energy doing it and yeah. so one of the worst things you can do as a white pastor. Is in any way insinuate that another white person may have some the, racial things going on that they need to work out?
4: Man, listen, listen, <laughs> listen. So,
3: I mean, it's not it's not as bad as a pedophile, yeah. but it's right no, no, below no, no. that. It's right so below. So what, that, what bro. I'm saying,
4: what, like American American exceptionalism is an is a, is an idol, hmm. and that's one of the things that I didn't realize. Like that idol is boy there are things that you are just literally you are literally not allowed to say no nope. yeah and what I'm trying to say is like it that idea is and the weird part is it's like strongest in reform communities that have such a high doctrine of depravity so it feels like <laughs> like well, like ma- 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 make it. it make sense to me
3: yeah, yeah. It should be a so
4: up. one of the things so this this is what I say to people and this is actually I've thought about this a lot Matt I don't know. I don't know if it's going to actually work. But this is the way I describe. I describe, I describe. Well, first thing I talk about. The, I talk about this in my book. The two narratives. There's the glory narrative of American history, where even our sins are like lessened because we've overcome them. So there was slavery, but we overcame it. There was sexism, we overcame it. There was the knowledge civil rights, we overcame it. And so the even like the dark parts, are part of the narrative of glory of glory. Mm. And there's this belief that like it, it since Christianity is so tied to it. A criticism of America feels like a criticism of Christianity, right? And people can't separate the two. Yeah. And the good thing, the the interesting thing about African Americans, broadly speaking, is that we've never believed that story. Yep. Like never, just never believed it. So it's just really weird for me if people like their their faith is so tied up in this story. But then I just to say, well then, like, but actually, here's the weird part: African Americans are super patriotic. We serve in the military in high numbers. And we love our, but what, like, what do we say or think or do different? I've thought about this. And this is, what I, this is what I realized. For African-Americans, broadly speaking, I'm not speaking for black people. I'm speaking for, okay, for me then. How about I put it this way? But I think this is common. The glory of the American story is not in our perfection. It has been, it's the fact that this is the arena within which we struggle for freedom. So the mm. glory for me, the greatness for me is actually in the struggle itself. So I'm proud to be an American because we have Martin Luther King.
5: Hmm.
4: I'm proud to be American because we have Frederick Douglass. So, like, the fact, what makes America spectacular, and it is, that this is the the arena upon which my people have fought for freedom. Yeah. And when you talk about it that way, it allows you to take the sin and the brokenness seriously and not have to deny these parts in order to feel good about it. So, like, that's what makes this country what it is. Right. Hmm. And so, like that's what. And, and, and until we see the glory in the underdogs, we're never gonna be healed. Because let me tell you something. This, this and this. This is the other thing that I've realized. A lie can only be kept in place by violence. Hmm. So I have kids, right? And my kids, if they if they're doing something like you know, like you know, I forget whatever it is. And I'm wrong as a parent. You know, and maybe if you've ever parent, sometimes you're wrong and you realize it. You know what you can do? You can say, go to your room. Because <laughs> you don't have any more argument, get out of here. Yeah. So now I realize I'm wrong, but my wrongness is only, only kept in place by the imposition of my authority. Yeah. And the only way that relationship can, can, can move forward if you're a parent, you have to go upstairs and say to your kids, I'm sorry, I lost my patience, I had a long day at work, the people yelling at me on the internet and I was grumpy and I took it out on you, forgive me. <laughs> Yeah. So here's the thing. Black people, Native Americans, indigenous people, Latina people, Latino people, Asian American, we know what happened. Yeah. And the only way to keep the lie in place is through violence.
3: Yep. Yes.
4: Rhetorical or actual. And you can't have a community based upon violence. And so if you want to say that the price for a community of black people Is believing a lie? You can only do that through the imposition of power, and we can never have community. Yeah. So community then has to come through truth telling, and truth telling has to come through a deep ownership of the brokenness of what has occurred. Yeah. While finding hope in the fact that God never abandoned us, despite the fact that we were sinful. Sorry, this is the last. I know I'm talking too much. I know you got stuff to say, but this is the last. The Old Testament is a tragedy. This is the reason we don't understand it. Mm. The Old Testament gives you the model. The Old Testament is a tragedy interspersed by interventions of God's grace. The people are always messing up. Every single character just about, except for the the occasional one, is always mucking things about. And every now and then, God intervenes and saves us from disaster. And the thing ends in a disaster. (laughs) Right. With the people of God no longer under authority in their own land. Yes. So the thing is a tragedy. Yep. That is only resolved by the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. So then, what is the American story? It's a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. With interventions of God's grace to save us from utter disaster. And unless we can own that. We can't have community, because I cannot believe a lie. I tried to do it, and it almost drove me crazy.
3: Mm. Yes, it's amazing how quickly uh, America and American Christians want to go, oh, the voting right, uh, 1964, the voting right thing, uh, civil rights legislation passed, and then we sort of have this amnesia curtain that falls over, and so we don't change our hermeneutic. We still have a slaveholder hermeneutic. We just now Mm. are like, that was weird. When we used to have slaves, yeah. <laughs> but
0: we, Wonder why we can that still happened. read the
3: Bible the same way and, yeah, yeah. and things will be fine, I guess. So there's no actual <sighs> rectification or restitution because the myth so quickly of progress and American exceptionalism, like you yes. said he saw, so quickly takes the victory as vindication without exactly. a reparation or rectification. Um, mm-hmm. so and part it's, of the- it's it's terrifying.
4: It is terrifying. Mm.
3: Um, I, I'm also thinking. You mentioned like, w- why did Black people fight in like World War II? Like, what was that about? Like, why would they want to fight for a country that denied them all their rights? And I was thinking about, you know, I did this uh, this project when I was in undergrad. Actually, it was, it was in seminary um, on Notre Dame football and how this little Catholic university was was started in the 19th century in northern Indiana. And Catholics in Indiana in the 19th and 20th century were a big target of the KKK. And so you had, like, the fighting Irish was a slur. It's like a slur towards yeah. Irish people, right? So when Irish people first came, and this is the same with Italians, and the same with uh, Polish people, they weren't in the white club. Like yeah. there was white, and then there was Irish, and there was white, yeah. and there was Italian. Uh, but uh, one of the things I think one of the factors that played into them getting into the white club was nationalism. So they would fight in mm. World War One in the trenches, and and so and they would come home. And and the uh, the Italians and the Irish weren't allowed to be in the police departments in Boston, but after World War One they were, and so there was like this welcoming into the white club for people who didn't used to be. But that like that sort of that thing never really happened for black people through nationalism, the way it did for quote white people through nationalism.
4: Yeah, that mean that there is a reason. I mean, the reason is like. It's actually it's it's really interesting. We could get into a much longer conversation about this. Is <laughs> that it? Just wasn't designed to allow us to come into those communities. You see the same thing that happened, like African and Africans are the became the antithesis. So we we became like we we became the repository of kind of projections. Yeah. And so for that, it was hard to. Fully recognize us as humans. That's what I mean when I talk about. I said this, and I say it every podcast. African Americans saved American Christian anthropology. It was like it was in it was in ruins. Mm-hmm. We had a gradation of people,
5: yeah,
4: running from like white all the way down to black. And people, wait, are you saying like the doctor along,
3: discovery is is from the from from the hell,
4: <laughs> right? <laughs> That, that was the, like that. That was that was like ranked, yes, right. Yeah. And like you could achieve like basically a higher level of rights by being added to a club, and they had actual lawsuits. Yes, where like Asians were attempting to like be classified as white so they could get right. more privileges in society. There's that a happened famous, in America.
3: There's a famous court case where someone Recently. from the Caucasus Mountains. Yes, yes. Said, and he was I denied. Am... and he was denied. Why? <laughs> Well, yes. it's from, he's from—he's from—he's a Caucasian ethnically, yeah. but it's
4: because his skin was dark. He's uh, Indian, I think. So what I'm saying is, like, yes, when, yes. when I talk about when I talk about like what what we did, it is not like it's. And I and I, I tweeted about this. I wish I had thought about this when I wrote the book because I think it'll be a quote that's in the book, but now it just exists on the internet. <laughs> but like, we talk about like what the British evangelicals did, and nobody gets upset. We talk about what the Celts did, Celtic spirituality, Celtic Christianity. We talk about, like, Nigerians and Ugandans, and nobody gets mad. Mm. The only people who aren't allowed to exist are African-Americans. <laughs> right? We even talk about Italians. Dude, that's the title of
3: your next book, How African-Americans Saved American Christianity.
4: Can you imagine if I put that book out? Bro. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Bro, can you imagine I, if it was we, called Reading While Black and I put How African Americans <laughs> Saved Civilization? People would lose their minds. Yeah, <laughs> lose yeah. their minds, and all of them. I, I probably, I probably there's fifteen. I, I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say everybody who's mad about the title of my book, do you own How the Celtic People Saved the yeah. Saved the West? Yeah. If you Did do, you re- be quiet.
2: <laughs> yeah. Did you read that and not feel offended once? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the really, book is. Do you
4: do, do you do you read British fiction? Do you love those British movies because yeah. they're British? Because you're yeah. an Anglophile. Yeah, yeah. You call yourself an Anglophile. Yeah. Because when I say I'm an Afrophile, you might get in your. F- anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Go ahead, Esau, sorry. You got to do, you do your job because you got to end the podcast. Yes. We could talk to you all day,
3: man. I, I mean, it's it's great. Yeah. I know you've given us a lot of time. The book is called Reading While Thank Black. You. African American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. It is a top three book of mine from 2020. It's a must-read. Uh, hey, if people are interested in reading more of what you write or interacting more with you, how would they do that, Esau?
4: If they're nice, they can follow me on social media. If they're mean, they can go and kick rocks. <laughs> so you can find me on you can find me on Twitter um, and Instagram, and there's an official Facebook page. As well, you I periodically write things in the New York Times that you will see if you follow yep. me on social media, and I also write for the Washington Post here and there, and Christianity Today here and there. So yeah. those are places and, where you can find me.
3: And I mentioned it quickly, but you're also assistant professor in New Testament at Wheaton, and yeah, I of, teach
4: Bible at Wheaton, but you yeah. don't get that. That's that's the reason. By the way, I, I, I tell people if you have if you get more than if you want more than one reply to a tweet. Come sign up for my class. I don't educate for free. <laughs>
5: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, so,
4: like, you get one reply if you, you know, it's like, I don't got time to be tweeting back and forth with you. I got a job and kids. So, yes. if you really want to know, sign up for a class. Yep. <laughs> Come to weekend. All right.
3: Pay the man for his education, for your education. Yeah. Thanks, Esau. Have a great afternoon.
4: I will. I'll talk to you later.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at Catch you next time.